I'm Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. Today, uh, we're actually going to talk a good amount about the, the other side of the offense, the, the incumbents, the traditional enterprises, uh, as I like to call them. So starting off with looking at a couple of investment theses, Walmart being one of the first ones. We've covered Walmart for years on the show, talking about the rise of Walmart Marketplace, their investment in you know their acquisition of Jet, their deal with Flipkart in India shortly thereafter, or somewhat shortly thereafter, another marketplace model uh, in India. There's now more news, and I think you know you're starting to kind of see this holistic uh, shift that Walmart has. You know, strategically put together and has now been executing upon for the past few years in how they're placing bets, how they're allocating capital, uh, and what that means for more traditional kind of big box stores uh, versus new, you know, new digital business models and, and, you know, how they put that all together. So Walmart is selling their majority stake in Asda, which is a UK grocery business. They had owned this for a while as it was losing share in the UK. The UK is a pretty highly competitive grocery market with um, lots of like digital delivery business models in grocery. Asda was losing share there. And you might find that to be a little peculiar because we've seen grocery in the United States be actually um, a huge boon to Walmart's digital aspirations um, with, for example, the... the uh, you know, order online, pick up at pick up at the store kind of functionality was a huge was and still is a huge driver of of Walmart's digital growth, and um, they uh, they have doubled down on that with Walmart Plus, which is a a highly kind of grocery oriented subscription offering. What I like about actually this article put it nicely at the end of the article. Given the company's big push into food retail in recent years, including the rollout of Walmart Plus, it might seem odd, uh, an odd choice for, for Walmart to exit Asda now. But it fits with the company's pivot in the past few years, focusing on higher growth businesses, uh, be it e-commerce or emerging markets. The recent decision to put capital in growth areas such as Walmart fulfillment services, so offering fulfillment services for third-party sellers, I'm going to touch on another offering in a second of, of what Walmart Marketplace just announced in the United States. And emerging companies such as JD.com, which um, we've covered them in China. It was the kind of linear competitor to Alibaba in China for a while. Now it has been making a big marketplace push. Uh, it, hasn't, you know, it has been taking on kind of 3P third-party inventory uh, and embracing that model for the past few years. Flipkart India, a marketplace model in India, Data Nexus and um, TikTok, which has been in the news about you know them wanting to take a stake in TikTok and use that content platform as a, as a channel to fuel e-commerce here in the U.S. So you're seeing them exit these more kind of traditional slow businesses that might be losing share and saying, how can I allocate capital into high growth areas, into digital areas, particularly into marketplace businesses, right? We saw this when Walmart bought Jet.com. Um, it was a it wasn't a huge sum of money for Walmart. It was a large sum of money. It was about three point three billion dollars. But in that year, I think it was twenty sixteen, uh, Walmart opened the fewest stores it had opened in twenty five years, at least in the United States. 
So you can see that reallocation of capital, right? They opened the fewest stores in 25 years. They bought Jet.com. And since buying Jet.com, they've probably been investing roughly a billion dollars a year into really a fulfillment and digital e-commerce oriented fulfillment infrastructure that they needed to kind of revamp a lot of their supply chain in order to um, solve for delivery. You know, uh, clearly with Amazon, we've seen and faster you can get stuff to the consumer, the better, <laughs> the more likely they are to buy from you and, and to keep coming back. Um, so Walmart has needed to, you know, figure out, okay, where, where am I a laggard? What is a slower growth market? Um, and how do I kind of make every dollar count? And these areas uh, that I'm describing, you know, these are clearly the priority areas where they can kind of exit. Broadly, we like Walmart's new portfolio-based approach to its international businesses. The company seems to be monetizing more mature businesses to free capital to invest in emerging areas and countries. So that could be kind of new digital business initiatives uh, and or kind of emerging markets and countries. Um, India fits both of those criteria. We're going to touch on India in a second and what's going on with uh, Mukesh, the richest guy in Asia, and his plat- platform transformation for his own linear business called Reliance. Um, on the last note here, though, for Walmart, taking a play out of Amazon's playbook here, they are partnering with Marcus, Goldman Sachs Digital Bank. Um, Goldman bought this from GE, this digital bank, a few years ago and um, are offered loans to Amazon sellers. Now they're doing something similar from Walmart. I think the big takeaway from this is this really helps give credence to the scale and traction that Walmart is getting with 3P third-party marketplace sellers, right? Um, Marcus isn't going to bother to do this. Walmart isn't going to bother to do this unless they're really seeing traction uh, with their third-party seller community. In order to get traction with a third-party seller community, you got to drive dollars to them, right? You got to bring demand to the third-party sellers, and you got to bring all these other services, whether it's fulfillment, like I was just talking about, or other uh, value-added services and offerings like uh, credit. He has an interesting stat in here. The marketplace delivered triple-digit growth in the last quarter. They're seeing over 100% growth. I would imagine that's kind of year over year, right? Comparing this past quarter to the prior year's quarter of growth on, you know, on the marketplace, right? So this guy is talking about the third-party seller part of Walmart.com, right? Inventory not on Walmart's balance sheet, coming from third-party sellers, not one P but three P. Um, so this is, you know, this is pretty substantial. Uh, they don't they don't break out exactly. How much GMV they have from uh, third-party sellers, or really, they kind of talk loosely about what e-commerce sales are overall for Walmart. Um, but uh, you know, we've we've kind of done some predictions on the show in the past. Uh, you know, what could that split be? One P to three P. But you know, I think we're definitely talking um, in the tens of billions of dollars worth of GMV for. Um, for Walmart Marketplace. I think we're roughly, Walmart might roughly be approaching 10%, but I don't think they're there yet in overall e-commerce, whether it's 1P or 3P, just roll it all together. Walmart's doing over $500 billion in total revenue. So 10% is at least $50 billion if if you take 10% of their overall global revenue. I mean, that's still a big number. Um, When you compare that to... um, 
Amazon's 2019 uh, numbers, I think Amazon was around $270 billion in total GMV in 2019. So still a meaningful discrepancy um, in e-commerce numbers overall, Amazon to Walmart, but, but still not small and growing quickly. So uh, this is great to see for Walmart. We're, we're long-term very bullish on Walmart and seeing them be the number two dominant marketplace behind Amazon. I mean, that, that's a big win. That's a big, big win. And I think Doug and the team and Jeff here are, are absolutely on the right track uh, to, to, make that, to make that a reality. So kudos to them. So next topic is uh, India. Um, we've covered Geo in the past. Um, Reliance Industries owns Geo. Geo has um, multiple business units. The, the way kind of these Indian companies are capitalized and they kind of take them public, it's, it's really interesting in India. But anyway, um, they're bringing all of these sub-business units within Geo, which is the telecom business first and foremost, which now has these silos of platform businesses on top of it. We did a big deep dive report that came out a few weeks ago. Uh, you can go on to hacks.applicoinc.com find that report. That's the Reliance Geo deep dive report. We covered how Geo was raising money from all the top PEs that are out there. And um, now this is, this is a separate division than um, that, those raises. So um, those raises were in what's called Geo platforms. And now this is called Reliance Retail Ventures. This is a separate business unit. They will collaborate, uh, but those are you know, um, like Facebook and uh, Facebook put a bunch of money into geo platforms and they're working on like different chat and content platforms, communication platform integrations, right? Geo uh, Mart is the kind of digital unit underneath Reliance Retail Ventures and Reliance Retail Ventures is what is ultimately now has just raised a few billion dollars. This article is saying $3.4 billion from some similar PEs, TPG, Silver Lake, KKR. Um, some of those guys were also in the Geo Platforms investment deal, which just happened in the past couple months. The interesting thing here is Reliance Industries, through Reliance Retail, bought this company called Future Group for about... $3.3 billion US a month ago. What is Future Group? Great question. India's Reliance Retail to acquire Future Group's units. Yeah, $3.4 billion. And it is the second largest retail chain in India. I believe second to Reliance Retail. So they have now consolidated uh, the number one, number two. They were number one. Now they own the number two. So collectively, they're an even stronger number one. Uh, retail, I'm talking bricks and mortar, to the tune of this acquisition will allow Reliance Retail to command one third of the bricks and mortar stores uh, of India's modern retail sector. Interesting, right? This stuff is a direct competitor to what Walmart and Flipkart, Walmart uh, and Flipkart are doing in India, what Amazon is doing in India. Now, these are retail stores. Geo Mart is the e-commerce division underneath Reliance Retail. These PEs are investing in Reliance Retail, right? So technically, 
Reliance Retail has bricks and mortar, now I guess a third of the modern retail in India, and they own Geomart. Interesting, right? So, and it's all underneath um, what's going, you know, it's all underneath kind of the umbrella and, and sharing synergies with Reliance's Geo Telecom network, right? And they've got hundreds of millions of users. They have a Constellation app strategy. They are cross-pollinating users into all their different apps, Geomart certainly being one of those apps. He kind of gave away a lot of that telecom, you know, basically like these cell, cell service plans with cre- like 50 gigs of data for, I don't know, like five or 10 bucks a month, something crazy cheap and lots of data. Um, and said, here you go. And got hundreds of millions of people to sign up. That costs a few billion dollars and took a handful of years. He got a lot of critical mass. And then he started to launch all these apps. Some of those apps were platforms. Some of those apps were just kind of linear service offerings. Like, uh, like they kind of bought like a Spotify, uh, like a Spotify version in India and rolled that into the offering. So they started to get, you know, you can have these app bundles, app bundles or something you don't really see much on iOS, but you see them a lot on Android and you see them a lot on Android in India. So they're pushing their app bundles. They're getting cross pollination across all these apps, this kind of constellation app strategy. Um, and so now Geomart is going to benefit from that. But now Geomart is also going to benefit from the fact that a third of, uh, the modern retail stores in India also are under the same umbrella. The interesting thing in India is you have a lot of these, like, I think they call them Karana shops, kind of like local shops. And um, these local shops, not only will they sell you stuff, they'll also act as like an ATM. They'll also um, let you like exchange products or, you know, they'll do a bunch of like e-commerce services. They'll, they'll do ATM services. They'll do a bunch of services on behalf of other digital businesses because they're close to the consumer and and there's um india's a big place there's a lot of people there's infrastructure challenges and um you know it's just hard to get penetration into all the disparate parts of the country so there's this there are these companies that just specialize in trying to like provide these networks of karana shops that then i mean they sell you products but then they provide a bunch of other services that you know, that you can kind of like tap into. This article here kind of touches on that. The retail arm launched Geomart, an e-commerce venture earlier this year. That initiative aims to connect mom and pop stores called Karanas with consumers. Geomart is active in more than 200 cities in India. It's an important part of their sales channel. There's a platform dynamic inherent in that, right? Helping to connect these shops with consumers on products and other services. Uh, that the geo has and and will all I'm, I'm sure be a part of this kind of reliance retail strategy here i think the question is how do you take the brick and mortar retail presence that you have and how do you turn that into a digital asset right how do you it, it makes sense to and and that was the key thing that our our deep dive focused on when when we did the the deep dive on geo and reliance was they have this linear offering called free or super cheap uh telecom you know cell cell plan how do you take that linear offering that gets you a huge audience of consumers and how do you channel those consumers into uh your digital platform assets and so we spent a lot of time really kind of looking at that in the report um i kind of paraphrased it there a minute ago 
And the question here is, how do you take all these retail stores and then siphon, you know, how do you turn that, that analog uh, demand, so analog revenue, right? I'm selling stuff to people in the store. How do I turn that into digital value? Good example about how Walmart did that in the US with grocery was allow you to order your groceries through an app and pick them up at the store. Right? I think we're going to see this GeoMart, right, which is already talking about providing services and connecting mom and pop, the Karanas, with consumers. I think you're going to see GeoMart overlay a lot of these digital tools and services, right? How do I show what, what is in all these shops? to consumers, right? How do I help now a third of these modern retail stores that between what Reliance Retail had and and with this uh, future future group acquisition, how do I take that asset, um, which I spent $3.4 billion on and um, convert that into digital value? And I think that's this overlay. How can Geomart overlay these things on top of these linear traditional analog stores. And you, you're essentially, you're not disintermediating because they already own the stores, but you're putting that digital layer on top of the stores. And now that means you're creating digital connections with the analog customer, turning the analog customer into a digital customer. And now you have a whole slew of options of what you want to do with those users, right? Now you can go do e-commerce. And, and marketplace, right? Can't really do marketplace in a brick and mortar store. Doesn't really line up. You got to get them in, into an app. You got to get them into that digital experience. And so uh, we've seen Walmart do a good job of this in the US, kind of bringing those digital assets closely intertwined with their analog uh, stores. And um, I think we're going to see Reliance now do this in, uh, in India. Now, the question is, Great. Sounds good on a high level, but how do you execute it, right? Where do you start? Where do you focus? Um, what are those really kind of seamless integration points that if you build this, you give this capability, it is a net net additive and seamless experience to the consumer. Uh, and, and you know, that, that shopping and that consumer experience in India is going to be very different than what worked here in the United States. You know, the good news is that uh, Reliance Retail now has a nice little war chest to go and figure that out they'll be able to drive digital users from the geo telecom network to geo mart. So that's one plus. And, but the real money, the real crux of this is how do they take those analog users and bring them into that digital geo mart universe? We'll see if they can pull it off, but I think they're thinking about it in the right direction. I think they've got smart people behind this. Um, and, and they've got it well financed. You know, now it's time to execute, right? Similarly, it's time to execute for what they're doing on the geo platform side too, to a certain degree. Um, they have gotten, I'd say, arguably, you know, farther along in the business model there. And this, this is a little bit newer, um, but still, you know, I think, I think from everything that we've seen so far, uh, this looks pretty attractive. The other good news is if you similarly think it's attractive. Apparently, these businesses will be doing public offerings in India in the near future. So you can you can decide for yourself, basically. Okay. Um, next topic is Uber's investment thesis. Uh, so Uber 
is selling their stake in uh their in in Uber freight um to this uh private equity firm Greenbrier Equity. 500 million funding round from Greenbrier Equity. Greenbrier Equity brings in cash as the right-handling parent copes with faltering core business. Oh, it actually sums it up pretty nicely. The new investors are coming in through what Uber Freight says is a Series A preferred stock financing. The investment values the business at $3.3 billion. And um, they're going to join the board. Transaction would provide Uber with an infusion of capital as the company pushes to cut costs and complete a $2.65 billion all-stock deal to acquire uh, Postmates that hasn't um, officially closed uh, yet, but you know we've covered that as an all-stock deal. So, again, we've already seen a lot of um, how Uber, uh, Dara, CEO of Uber, has, has made it very clear we're either first or we're second but we're not third. Hence the name of the show. This guy, this guy, the other way, this guy gets the show. There is no third place in, uh, in marketplace war. It's only first or second. And sometimes second can be a distant second. Yeah. We've seen Uber exit markets where they are third or possibly fourth. And we've seen them double down in markets where they are one or two and try to accelerate consolidation. What we're seeing with this Uber Freight deal is, is is this was a side business, kind of an other bets. They I think they in their earnings they literally call it other bets uh, when they break out the revenue and the GMB. This is an other bets business, which I mean, if you look at this though, when you say three point three billion dollar valuation, did the money that Uber put into Uber Freight create uh, a positive ROI? Absolutely. Um, Absolutely, it did. They've been losing money and having to invest in Uber Freight, but it was certainly was not to the tune of you know over $2 billion to get the business to where it is today. Here, most recently, they're saying they've lost about $50 million in the most recent quarter. Um, and it was roughly a $50 million loss in the same quarter the prior year. So if they're burning a couple hundred million dollars a year, even if the thing was around for 10 years and they're burning $200 million a year, you actually still made money on the business, um, technically. So, and, and we'll see if the valuation holds and all these things, but I think Uber Freight um, hasn't been able to achieve that breakout scale. It has done well, relatively. Um, it has certainly gained traction. There's an argument to be made for how much of that, do they just kind of buy the market? Truckers would receive payments normally like net 30 or net 60. And if you receive your payment net 30, that could actually mean you're technically getting it net 60 because, you know, you complete the job, you're the trucker. Um, now, you know, you drive for like a 3PL. The 3PL needs to get paid from their customer, the shipper. Uh, and then, and then they, you know, start the clock on the driver and, one of the biggest gripes for drivers was just, I want my money. And so one of the things Uber did was say, we'll pay you in seven days. It's not a platform innovation. That's just a compelling linear service offering, right? Um, just financing the receivables faster. And if the shipper stiffs me, Uber freight the bill, well, you know, you're not going to feel that pain driver. 
uh, and and they'll take responsibility for it. So they tried to do a lot of things to kind of help provide a better app experience, right? It's seamless. Here's the ride. Here's the money. Bam. Click accept. You're on your way. You get paid in seven days, stuff like that. I think the, the challenge or the market dynamics in, in trucking are very different than ride sharing, right? Ride sharing, you created a bunch of new supply and marketplaces do very well when there is a lot of fragmented supply. Trucking doesn't have that luxury. Actually, there's, there's a driver shortage and um, you can't just go and let anyone become a truck driver. You need to have a, a CDL, a commercial driver's license. Oh, and you need a truck. You need a rig. Those things are kind of expensive. Um, so it's not the same dynamics. Just be like, hey, just go jump in your car and start driving people around like you can for Uber or Lyft or whatever. So um, the supply is more constrained, which uh, what we've said on the show here is the thesis, what you really need to do, and we're starting to see some companies do this, albeit a little slowly, is to embrace a three-sided marketplace model. There are these things called 3PLs. There's tens of thousands of 3PLs. There's drivers and there's shippers. It's a more laborious way to get to, and a little bit more painful way to get to critical mass. But a lot of these three PLs that are competitive to Uber Freight, which is two-sided, shipper and driver, um, and is competitive to what the big three PL and trucking companies like a JB Hunt and and uh, and others, DB Shanker and others are doing. They Uber Freight, these other digital freight providers are investing hundreds of millions of dollars in their digital tools and services. You know, these smaller mom and pop 3PLs, they can't do that. Uh, So whoever decides to commoditize the complement, whoever decides to say, I'm going to give all these 3PLs a bunch of free tools. I am going to enable my harshest competitors, smaller mom and pop 3PLs, and give them free tools, will be able to build a three-sided marketplace, right? Those 3PLs have their own network of drivers. They'll use these tools. They'll bring their drivers onto your tools, and then you'll be able to connect them to demand. But the 3PLs will also be able to use the tools with their own shippers, their own demand that they bring to the table. Three-sided marketplace, not as sexy, much longer path to monetize, not something that Dara and Uber Freight people want to hear. They're heads down. They're committed to the two-sided marketplace business model. I think it's too late for them to kind of re-engineer the business model and embrace embrace a three-sided marketplace. But um, I think ultimately you're just going to kind of see the stagnation. I mean, these guys aren't 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 achieving 30, 40% market share anytime soon. And I don't think they're going to achieve it with the current business model. Anyway, I digress. Long story short, you're seeing them say, you know, I'm not going to continue to invest in other bets. And instead, I'm going to take that capital and double down on the markets I'm number one or number two in for my core business, which is ride sharing. Uh, and that is what we're seeing here, or we might see here. Uberway's purchase of uh, BMW and Daimler's ride hailing venture. They changed the name on this. I guess it's called Free Now. It used to operate as My Taxi. Now it's called Free Now. So there, it, it's it's a ride sharing competitor in Europe. Free Now used to operate. As my taxi and his integrated ride hailing apps, including France's Captain, Greece's Beat, and Romania's Clever Taxi, um, Daimler, which owns Mercedes, valued the equity investment in its half of in its half of the Your Now venture at about seven hundred twenty million dollars at the end of June. More consolidation in core markets, um, spending less money on other bets. Investors are going to like to see this. Dara is under pressure. 
would he be making this decision if we weren't in the middle of a pandemic? Ride sharing wouldn't have tanked, you know, 40 plus percent. Um, maybe not. I, I, I don't know if we would have, frankly. Uh, instead, you know, I think Uber would be in a very different state than where it is today, albeit Uber Eats has really been the saving grace of Uber and just speaks to the strength of having a platform conglomerate versus a single platform business like Lyft, uh, where their whole business is ride sharing and they're in a much more precarious position than than Uber is because they have Uber Eats. So, and I think actually we're seeing Uber Eats surpass the GMV of Uber ride sharing uh, because that's had explosive growth. Uber overall is 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 much better differentiated due to that kind of platform conglomerate standing. Last topic. Silicon Valley's echo chamber. Uh, fortunately, I don't live in Silicon Valley. So I get to have a little bit of an outsider perspective. But uh, maybe one or two episodes ago, we covered that if you just look at the political d- donations from the tech companies, um, you know, the, the software tech companies, many of them platforms, but not all of them, very clear uh, politically where the employees fall, you know, on the political spectrum. So we covered that. I found some more articles here that further support that. I don't know if anyone really questions that, Uh, but this article is from 2016 and uh, nearly all of Silicon Valley's political dollars are going to Hillary Clinton and a nice little chart here. The blue is Hillary. The red is Trump. Um, this article, 2016, just 52 tech workers donated to Trump's campaign. This is in CNN. I don't. They got this from CrowdPack. Both of those articles are getting their data from CrowdPack. I was seeing, you know, did did this go up or go down? Right? Did did the bias towards liberal candidates go up or down? And apparently, it's actually gone up since 2016. Uh, This was one of the articles I featured, which is um, uh, just going through different tech companies and showing, you know, how many dollars were donated, 98% to Democrats from Netflix and 2% to Republicans. And you got Salesforce, you got Google in here, you got Microsoft, you got Apple, PayPal, uh, Amazon, and Facebook. Amazon and Facebook of the large tech monopolies are actually the two lowest um two lowest in terms of liberal donations democrat donations at 77 percent each and 23 percent for republicans for conservatives then they have they have uh some like intel like hardware tech companies in here uh and that's the rest of the list the those hardware tech companies do have uh more of a balance this article this cnbc article is from july of 2020 no, but I, was, I wanted to make sure I had this right. So then I saw this article, tech companies aren't just donating to Democrats. I was like, oh, okay. Maybe this is wrong. A look at Silicon Valley's contributions to Republican campaigns. And so I was looking at this. And basically what this article is saying, you see these charts here, um, which look much more balanced. Democrat to Republican for... This one is for Microsoft. Republican, 51% Republican for Amazon, and 
54% Republican for Twitter. Wow, that's a pretty shocking difference. Well, the reason is because these are PACs. These are political action committees. These are the company of the company of Amazon, Microsoft, and Twitter donating to these political action groups. So this is kind of like lobbying dollars, which are split somewhat evenly. Um, and then if you click the other tab on this site, then it shows you what the employees donated. And then it goes back to, it's actually even worse than the other stat, the other, other article I was looking at. Then it says Microsoft, which on that CNBC article said, said 77% of employees were donating Democrats. This one's saying 91% um, of employees are donating to Democrats. That's for Amazon. Instead of 77, it is actually 89% to Democrats. Twitter is actually 98.7% of employees donating to Democrats. So um, I think it's pretty fair to say that there is um, <clears throat> an, an echo chamber amongst these large software tech companies based out of California or Washington, you know, the, the West Coast. Um, and their employees supporting Democrats. Now, is that wrong? Is that right? Whatever. You can make up your own, you know, your own opinion on it. But that fact is important to keep in mind when you hear about critiques of what, you know, what's happening inside of the tech companies and what, what tech companies are then kind of casting their image on the rest of the world. And what that comes full circle is on this uh, Coinbase. Coinbase is, I think, probably the largest tech startup um, uh, Bitcoin wallet. I mean, they do a bunch of like alt currencies now, but it's the largest wallet for you know Bitcoin and and other alt currencies. The company's done extremely well. I think it's profitable. And and Brian Armstrong is the CEO. Brian Armstrong wrote this article on Medium saying they're a mission-focused company, basically kind of laying out, you know, here's our mission for the company. Here's what we're focusing on building. Um, you know, here's what we need to be focused on. And then there's this little paragraph in here on broader societal issues and political causes. Um, broader societal issues, which is highlighted, top highlight on Medium, which says we don't engage here on broader societal issues when issues are unrelated to our core mission because we believe impact only comes with focus. This did not go over well in the Silicon Valley echo chamber. Um, and why did that not go over well? Well, because, you know, when you look at the idea of corporate activism on societal topics, that has not been relegated to tech companies. But that certainly has kind of come about, I would say, in the past four years. I mean, I go to all these business conferences and, you know, you've got all these CEOs of, of the top companies there. And if you rewind the clock four, five, six, eight years ago, basically pre the current administration, uh, you know, being elected into the White House, it was very much so um, uh, understood amongst these CEOs of publicly traded companies that you don't wade into these societal issues. And if you do, you, you do it selectively and, and rarely. Whereas now what you've seen in the past four years is you've seen it completely go in the other direction, 
where it is now almost expected that that companies take um, societal kind of activism and uh, and and take a stance on these issues, which can be very problematic for the companies, particularly if you have a um, employee base which is, uh, I would say, you know, ideologically diverse. These tech companies, however, as we've just gone through, actually don't have a very ideological, at least politically diverse uh, employee base, as evidenced by their donations and contributions. As a result of that, uh, you know, there's a very kind of opinion about, you know, the role of, of companies should be to take activism uh, on these societal issues. And one of these up-and-coming tech media journalists certainly would s- share that sentiment. This is the information this, I believe, note was written by Jessica Lesson. She is the founder of The Information. So she has two emails on this Coinbase thing in the, in the past week or so. First email is saying, uh, 51% of subscribers disagree with Coinbase's Armstrong. Okay. Uh, we did a survey, found that 51% disagreed with Armstrong, saying companies should engage with social act- activism outside their core mission. Slightly higher proportion, 56%, also didn't believe employees should leave a company if they disagreed with their chief executives on this issue. I would say it's not too much of a stretch to assume that the information's audience, just like the political uh, bias that exists inside of these large tech companies, I would imagine that their reader base similarly follows a similar ideological weighting. Now, I don't have any data on that. But that would be my assumption, which means that if that assumption is correct, then this 51% actually might be very different if you were to poll or if your audience were to be a more balanced population of uh, conservatives and uh, liberals. I continue. Next, uh, and then on Saturday, three days later, she's getting a little grumpier now with this whole thing. Uh and so she, the title is why Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong will lose. What's he going to lose? He's going to lose uh, his company or his stance on the topic. It was a blog post heard from Napa to Lake Tahoe <laughs> and all other places. Silicon Valley CEOs are hiding out from the smoke and COVID-19. I mean, if that's not a way to start the blog post and, and exhibit this uh, political bias and echo chamber I'm talking about. I don't know what intro will. So she talks about this. And then he said that the CEO followed up with a bold offer. If you don't like not, you know, the, our stance on, on, on really a lack of taking a stance on social activism, then you can leave and we'll pay you six months severance to quit. And she's got a long article here. She is not a happy camper. But this is where I found it interesting. Uh... She's talking about finding their tribe, how employees and cultures are being shaped inside of large tech companies. She's talking about Google. She's talking about um, Facebook here. And, you know, enter Armstrong, who clearly had enough. His solution, which is both practical and harsh, was to kindly invite those who disagreed with his position to leave. In fact, by offering such generous severance, he flat out tented them too. Kind of like what we heard Tony say. The founder of Zappos, you know, Amazon bought many years ago, a shoe selling company. He would offer him like $10,000 to leave. Actually, he did it multiple times on many things. 
and and it was it was a good way to actually keep the culture tight. Um, and so she says, I don't think they will leave, especially now. They, I assume, being the people that disagree with Brian, their CEO, with the uncertainty around the pandemic and the money to be made in tech, I think employees, or perhaps especially the dissenters, will stick around and stay loud. Does she think this is what will happen? Or is she also signaling that this is what she would like to happen? It seems kind of personal why Brian Armstrong will lose. And not only should these employees not leave, they should stick around and stay loud. They should actually dissent, right? She's calling them dissenters. While CEOs and perhaps even the majority of employees are looking for a consistent corporate culture, some are not. They are perfectly happy and perfects, in, in fact, perhaps happier to find their tribe within a company and to provoke any established corporate culture, often using the very technologies they helped build. What she's trying to do is cause not a mutiny, but you know, to build uh, a faction inside of Armstrong to not leave and stay vocal and dissent and um and and not take his severance money, but to try and and bring him down, right? And this is where they are in fact happier is to find their group of dissenters and to provoke the culture. I'm using her words. These aren't mine. If these dissenters can't be persuaded to leave, can they be absorbed? Or will they just encourage more and different types of dissenters? Basically, will the virus spread to other parts of the company? My bet is that the scales will continue tipping towards the latter, which means you get your little tribe of dissenters and then you, you recruit more dissenters into the tribe. Other grievances against the corporate mainstream culture that this horrible CEO, Brian, is uh, cultivating. Especially when you factor in the, the likely march of remote work, and that's a trend uh, no memo can reverse. There's another part of this that I thought was really interesting. Saying what you stand for is the easy part. What is much harder and I fear impossible is spreading and enforcing that culture because the technologies that have fractured mainstream culture into a million subgroups are doing the same inside our companies. And that's especially true in tech companies for two reasons. First, people who work in tech are savvy users of technology to communicate, vent, and organize, and always will be making the spread of subcultures easy. And secondly, with few exceptions, consumer tech companies are directly embroiled in major polarizing social issues based on the effects of their products or simply their outsized power. I don't think that you know what what jessica is missing here or i don't know she's not missing what she's trying to bring about is that someone brian who has an upcoming very promising tech startup decides to try to shape what his culture what he wants in his company and that doesn't line up with what the tech elites agree should happen right if he's not an activist well he's gonna have to lose and uh, we, the tech elites, are going to empower and motivate and, and speak to the uh, dissenters inside of Coinbase 
and try to get them to stay strong, don't leave, recruit other dissenters, and provoke the mainstream culture. When you listen to uh, CEOs of any company talk about when you have, you know, culture is everything, and if you have bad employees, you can have a virus. That's another way that many CEOs will speak about culture issues. And, you know, the lesson there is to uh, fire fast. And if you see, and if you have a defined culture, and Brian points it out in, in that Medium article about what their value system is and so on and so forth, as the businesses scale, it becomes very hard to enforce those values. Um, and I think that's actually what you've seen with these massive tech monopolies. They've hired, they're hiring five, 10,000 plus people a year. How do you hire all these people and still keep a tight, cohesive culture? And I think instead, what you've now, what's happened is you have these tech monopolies that do wield so much power and have these wildly biased uh, echo chambers and wildly biased towards the left inside of these large tech companies. I haven't seen one shred of data to convince me anything differently from that fact. And instead, I think, you know, we just played Zuckerberg's leaked audio from a couple of weeks ago where you have him saying, hey, guys, you know that our biggest complaint from our users is that we silence conservatives too much. But, you know, all the employees inside of Facebook that one article says 77% of them are donating to Democrats and other articles saying what 89% are donating to Democrats are saying just the opposite and said we need to be uh, regulating and moderating conservative content more. And all the articles in the press are that Facebook is here to support conservatives. So, you know, which one is it? And I think what you're seeing is that actually there is an echo chamber problem in Silicon Valley. And it's gotten so bad that if any of these uh, conservative tech people speak out, Brian's not even speaking out on the conservative side of the spectrum. All Brian is saying is we're not going to take a stance. And I think it's pretty clear to say that the Democrat social issues of which a lot of these companies have taken much more social activism stances on, many of which, you know, to contrast what's going on with, with the uh, Trump administration and so on and so forth. So if any tech CEO decides to take a stand and say, well, not even that he's going to support the right side of the aisle, just that he's not going to take a stand, that's not allowed. And we are going to deploy and support our dissenters to work against that CEO. I mean, there's something just really wrong about that. When instead you've got Jessica here saying that these people are tech savvy, they're really good at communicating, and they're really good at you know taking insight. When in fact, I, I think there's this huge blind spot in Silicon Valley, and that they're, they're not able to appreciate their own bias. And I, I think that's a big problem. I think that's a big problem in terms of how we see these large tech companies self-regulating themselves and moderating content and the policies that they put into place. And it's a big problem for these media and these journalists that exhibit a similar bias. And it comes through in their writing. And frankly, you know, they're just very off base on a lot of these things. So I think there's an argument to be made that having a balanced and diverse culture is not only on demographics and race and religion and gender and um, sexual preference and all these other things, but it's very much so ideologically. And, and political uh, ideology is a very big deal, as we've seen. And so I would actually say that these tech companies that pride themselves on their diversity actually have big diversity problems. 
Uh, and that can lead to a lot of these very contentious debates that we're seeing. That can lead to, if you read through her articles, why you actually have a lot of these leaks and a lot of this internal turmoil is that you actually don't have a very diverse ideological, at least when it comes to politics, community inside of these companies. And so if you disagree against the group think, they will come after you, <clears throat> just like they're trying to come after Brian, who's just trying to take a neutral stance, the poor guy. I'd love to get Brian's perspective on this, and we'll invite him on the show and see if he takes me up on it. But uh, that's it for us today. I'll leave, I leave these fun topics towards the end, if you've noticed. And uh, I hope you enjoyed, enjoyed uh, joining us today on Winner Take All, and I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>